Station Arts Beat Arts Beat Arts Beat Art Beat Conversation Greetings everyone out there. This is Ginger Donnell. I'm your host on Art Beat Conversations and I just wanted to take a moment to touch base with you. We're already at episode 12. This one is going to be um, our interview with Frank Buffalo Hyde, who's an incredible indigenous artist and a friend of mine and um, a social activist and just a really incredible, inspiring person. Um, so I hope you enjoy this interview. And before we get into it, I just I just wanted to take a moment to say thanks for being a part of this wild journey with me. It's um, it's kind of been a labor of love and I do everything myself on this podcast from um, recording the audio to editing to putting the music in to researching to writing the blog um, to posting stuff on social networking, um, all of it. So it's a little DIY and you know, it's, I don't have the, the most expensive equipment yet. (laughs) Um, I don't have, um, I don't have my recording studio idealized, um, how I really want it yet, but it's getting there, you know? Um, but the, the essence of the podcast is there and that's, what's important. The stories of the people, um, most, most people are out of the state that I'm in, which is Santa Fe, New Mexico, Um, So I do a lot of um, Skype interviewing and, you know, there's glitches and stuff like that, but um, it's authentic and um, the stories can transcend through any of the weirdness that you might hear. And um, I just want to give myself that disclaimer that um, this podcast is from my heart and it's a gift to all of you to um, hopefully inspire other studio artists out there working that you're not alone in your in your fight for um, beauty and truth and um, for maintaining your identity as an indigenous person or as an activist. Um, there's other people out there who are also going through similar struggles and self-doubt and inspiration. And, um, I just wanted to connect the dots in that way. And I started this podcast when I was pregnant and I had my baby right before I released episode nine, um, which was our, my interview with Cloudface, um, Patrick Burnham. So, um, the last few interviews have been a little bit rougher around the edges, but, um, I think that they're quality, beautiful people doing incredibly strong work, and I didn't want to miss the opportunity to share their voices just because I had a baby. <laughs> so anyways, um, that's, my, that's, that's my story, and I'm sticking to it, and now I'm raising two children, and I'm going to continue this podcast, and I'm going to continue to reach out into the world and tell stories of indigenous and activism-based artists that are doing wonderful things. The world is shifting, and they're right there um, drawing about it, painting about it, singing about it, uh, filming it. And I love that. And I'm super proud to know most of these artists so far. And I also wanted to just take one moment. If you have anybody that you think would um, benefit from participating in this project, um, shoot them them my way. 
artbeatconversations at gmail.com or artbeatconversations.com. They can, they can hook up with me through the website or on Facebook at Artbeat Conversations. Um, I'm open to, um, to widen my gaze and to, to get more artists that I'm not aware of connected with their, um, their peers to, to bring the dialogue into a larger perspective. So, um, it's, it's for us all and by us all, you know, it's DIY baby. So without further ado, um, enjoy the interview with Frank Buffalo Hyde and, um, let's just keep it rolling. Thank you for listening. Appreciate it. My name is Frank Buffalo Hyde. I am a member of the Onondaga Nation Beaver Clan, um, contemporary artist that deals with uh, Native American identity stereotypes and uh, other fantastical imagery. Um, formerly a musician, always have a musician sort of heart and a way of approaching things. Uh, I spent my younger life in uh, Syracuse, New York, in a in a band with a bunch of guys from the reservation, and uh, so that's kind of that was my introduction into creativity was through music, and uh, that kind of approach has stayed with me as far as the way that I see things as parts of a whole and um, as a collaboration with either you know your materials or with other people. It's always sort of a give and take. So I've always been, you know, with the right people, it's always been easy for me to collaborate because I have that sort of band mentality um, at times. Do you collaborate a lot in your work currently? Um, I have. It's it's tough because, you know, there, there are certain collaborations that, you know, on paper you think are going to be awesome, but it's just, it's just a matter of personality of whether, you know, you can deal with somebody painting over your stuff and not everybody can do that. Like, you know, make something you think is cool. And then somebody comes along and is like, Oh yeah, that's cool. Let's put some blue over it. And be like, Hey, Hey, Hey. But, um, I've collaborated on a large scale on mural projects with students and stuff like that. So it, it's, you know, the in, input of like 20 different people on, on a finished product is, you know, it's an undertaking, but, you know, as far as what, uh, how we used to paint at the Humble, uh, that's kind of where I was really comfortable working with other artists because they were, you know, at varying levels of, you know, painterly skills. And we were all just kind of having fun and leaving paintings and pieces open-ended like a, like a conversation or a song, just like, you know, that's how I thought of songwriting is like, it's, it's up to a point, but it's always has an open end. You can always go back to it and rework it or add something to it or let somebody else add to it and it'll either add or um, take away from it. So. Cool. So what's up with, um, Growing up in New York, and what kind of music did you play, and um, what were your parents like? What what was your dynamic in your family? Well, that's actually an it's an intricate story. I'll try to be brief and succinct <laughs> with it. Um, I was actually born here in Santa Fe at the old Indian Hospital um, in 1974, and uh, when I was born, I was born with a congenital birth defect, um, meaning that I was born without my right arm below the elbow and my right leg above the knee. And 
I've been underestimated from day one because the doctors there immediately wanted me to be institutionalized, told my mother I would never have a normal life and that, you know, she should make the best arrangements that they could for me just to go into some sort of uh, permanent care facility at the time. And she was like, you know, I'm not, that's fucked up. There's, there's no way that's going to happen, you know. There's no way that's going to happen. So that was never a question for her, but they told me about it later. And I was like, you know, so much of your life is based upon those split second decisions or those sort of intersections where somebody has to make a choice, whether it's your parents or it's you about, you know, how your life is going to go for the rest of, of it. And, you know, if she had listened to the doctors and been like, you know, okay, well, you guys know better then you know, my life would be totally different. So, um, Having said that, at the age of three, we went back to the Onondaga Reservation in Syracuse to live because that's where my mother's from. Um, my parents separated and ultimately divorced. And um, so I spent like the school year out in Syracuse and on the res. Um, and then I spent the summer times out here visiting my father almost every summer since I was like six or seven. So I got to see that there was a world beyond the reservation, which not a lot of my friends uh, were able to see. Hmm. So, you know, at it would serve me well later, like after high school saying, you know, th this is the last year we're all going to be together and then we're all going to go off and be who we're going to be. And then they just kind of looked at me like, what the hell are you talking about? Like, this is what we're, this is what we're going to do. We're doing it, you know? <laughs> and, you know, they've, they've since all, you know, gone on and been um, successful and having their own families and their careers and stuff. But, I always had this idea of that, you know, um, at some point I would have to leave the reservation and, and sort of see, not necessarily seek my fortune, but see what was out there for me or what it had to offer me. So um, my mother remarried, my father remarried several times. So I have uh, like a staggered family of half and stepsisters uh, and a half brother um, from like three or four different families. So... Um, I've been, I've been the youngest child. I've been the middle child. Uh, so I've kind of, I got a really unique perspective as far as that goes. And our, and our, like my brother, he's 20 years younger than me. So we've got like no, we no shared cultural references. Like hmm. <laughs> he's from like a totally different generation. So, but you know, I, um, I generally get along with most of my siblings and, um, it's just a, there's a distance there just because of the, you know, there's been such a fragmentation of the family. Um, that also kind of fed into why I was always so careful about starting a family or having a family that I, you know, I don't want that sort of trauma for my daughter. I have a three-year-old daughter and uh, married to my wife, Courtney. And uh, it, it's that's just a, a trauma that sticks with you sort of growing up with that void of a parent missing or that void of a parent filling your spot with another family. It's just it's just a weird sort of mind, mind screw. So it kind of affected you just feeling like you couldn't not having that nuclear family. Yeah, I mean, it's just kind of I don't know if it's necessarily separation anxiety, but it's it's always that sort of. You know, other kids grew up with both parents, and um, I always knew sort of the situation. Like, it wasn't hidden from me. There was, you know, it was very out in the open as far as my father remarrying and my mother remarrying. And um, 
So it created this weird dichotomy of like my life out here in the Southwest and my life in central New York. Growing up on the reservation, you know, I don't have to explain reservation life to anybody that's ever lived on the reservation, but for those that don't, you know, it, it's, it can be the most beautiful place to grow up, but it can be the, the toughest place to grow up because, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a hard life. There's a lot that goes on there that, you know, if you, if you get in with the wrong people, it can, it can lead you down a path that's not healthy or productive or it won't allow you to grow. So I grew up, you know, um, without running water or electricity all the way through high school. Um, I worked summers out here to put in a septic tank for my family. Before I came out here to go to college, you know, I took maybe less than a handful of showers in my own house before I came out here to go to school. And then um, on the flip side of that, when I came out here, uh, my father is a really well-known artist and, you know, he made and he is really sort of successful at it. So his lifestyle, was the total opposite of what I lived for most of the year. Um, How was that going from like no electricity to like kind yeah. of this bohemian? <laughs> yeah. Well, it was, um, like I said, it was kind of tough, especially when I was younger. I'd be, I'd be out here and we'd be traveling around the country, like staying in hotels, um, eating out like all the time. And then um, having running water, you know, indoor plumbing, all that stuff. And then, you know, a lot of people take it for granted, but what, you, what people don't realize is there are still people in this country that are living in like, quote unquote, third world conditions, carrying their own water, not having indoor plumbing. So, you know, that's the way that I grew up. And it, it, I knew that the other kids in my class, because I went to school off the reservation, like they didn't think twice about anything like that. And for me, it's, you know, it's just the way that we grew up. And you know, if I have to go back to living that way, it's not a big deal for me. But, you know, I'm not planning to. But <laughs> Was so. your um, father the first um, kind of introduction to art? Was seeing him work as an artist what inspired you or was... No, in fact, um, because he was an artist, that was the last thing I ever wanted to be. It's like I resisted <laughs> being an artist for years and years. And that's why I went into music because, you know... I figured we have one artist in the family, um, our family, but we have art on both sides of my family. That's what a lot of people don't really realize is my mother's side is very artistic. All my uncles um, have an artistic related job or talents. And uh, so, no, I, I the last thing I wanted to be was an artist. I just kind of, I wanted to be anything else but an artist. And that's why sort of music kind of, pulled me it was you know you use the same creative muscles but it's it's you know when you're a teenager it's it's loud and you get to be cool and chicks like musicians and it was like all that stuff so um it wasn't until after I came out here to go to school and sort of was in the writing program at you know I I that I kind of slowly started being seduced by 2D studio classes. And I, you know, eventually I was spending more time on those assignments than my writing classes. And, you know, ultimately going in the writing track was another attempt to avoid making like art, like, you know, but somehow I just kind of 
eventually got got in there somehow and um but yeah you know um seeing how my father his lifestyle and sort of how he was treated and how he treated people in in gallery situations was a help because he's always been very down to earth no matter how well known he is he's just a regular person and i always think of him as just you know my dad and people find out who he is or see him and then you you know how artists are received in certain circles they start to be um they start to be put on this pedestal like you know they're they're somehow different than everybody else and he never really treated anybody like he was so that was really important for me to see because you know as well as I do in the art world some people believe their own press and that they feed off their own ego and they they really do believe that they um that their shit doesn't stink or somehow you know they put on their clothes differently than we do so <laughs> they be they kind of become the piece of art themselves yeah i mean that's it's it's a shame but i that's one of the things that i didn't like about what was going on out here in santa fe cuz i would sit in my dad's studio looking at the art magazines and i would see ads for people like a they would be right in front of their work and you would see most of them and they'd be like, they'd have like their flowing hair and their choker on and stuff like that. And I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. That's cool. But you know, in every ad every year, all the time, it's just like, what are we selling here? Like, you know, is it about your work or is it about your, you know, hair, hair blowing in the wind? So that's kind of something I've always been against is that where, where is that line where the artist is selling himself or herself or what they make or what they're saying with their art. Yeah. It seems like you create, I mean, it's interesting learning that you did writing at first because you do create a dialogue in your work. And do you think your first, um, your first impressions of doing that came from viewing this like romantic vision of the native American artist and wanting to like talk about that or something? No, um, <laughs> not at first Consciously, I saw that the work that would, the work that I was seeing wasn't describing what I was living or what my family was living or any of my friends were living. The work that I was seeing was, you know, the super, the super Indian artist phase of the 80s was over or it had happened and everybody was still sort of riding on that energy. And so, you know, the artists that had established themselves then were just kind of, what still, is that still feeding into that for people who don't understand what that super Indian of the eighties thing um it was it was a time where native artists were making a lot of money um making their work and their work wasn't based on the sort of flat dorothy Dunn style of like the the forties thirties and forties um this work was more contemporary there were artists like t c cannon uh kevin redstar doug Hyde. Fritz Shoulder later, um, and it was about it was about portraying a more contemporary version of Native Americans, but then also it became like a facsimile of itself. So like that that progress and that push became what people wanted, and then you know if it wasn't that, then people didn't want it. So it became it sort of became its own um, its own market hmm. driving itself, and. Um, and then there was a lot of offshoots because there was a lot of decorative art that's gone on then and still goes on here in Santa Fe. That's why I don't buy like people saying this is the third biggest art market. I mean, that's bullshit because there's very little art being made here. Like most of the shit that you see up and down the, the road in, in Canyon Road and downtown is just stuff to decorate your 
house and it's not this no social content it's not helping anybody it's not doing anything for me anyway but you know i understand like rich ladies need stuff to match their carpet but you know that's <laughs> that's never been what i was about so what are so what have you been about getting back to that question of like yeah. what your first um, conversation yeah, was? My, f I just noticed that it, it there was no conversation hmm. that nobody was talking about it. There wasn't one visual sentence, at least publicly, that I saw in magazines. Like we'll call it the mainstream. And when I say mainstream, we're talking like any kind of Southwest rag, like Southwest art, um, Native artist, all that. I mean, it, it was all very like polished very stylistic work that an artist was known for and they kept turning it out for 25 years you know it'd be the same composition just a little bit different color same composition a little different size okay now we're doing it on paper and you know so it was just you know everybody was baking cakes and um you know i'm not stupid i understand the logic behind that, you know, you know, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. People want it, keep making more of it. But um, I guess that's never been important to me. I mean, I've had success as far as people have been interested in what I do yearly. And every year I've sort of garnered better attention, better gallery representation, better museum shows. And um, it was, you know, it's been a slow sort of process because I was, really conscious of trying not to be that person that was like a flash, like a flash in the pan, like everywhere and then nowhere. Mm -hmm. Like then nobody wanted to hear what you were going to say. So I would say after, after IA, um, there was a period of like eight or 10 years when I couldn't pay anybody to have a show anywhere. Like nobody wanted to, nobody wanted to see what I was making or hear what I was talking about. And, um, those are very important years because there was no shortcut into making those paintings. Cause like, remember up until then I was a musician and a writer mm -hmm. and then decided I was going to be a painter. And then, um, you know, basically sucked. How did that make you feel? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> how did being in that space make you feel like an eight to 10 year um, space where you're like having these ideas, but nobody's wanting to hear them. Well, I was always making the work and the work was there. People were responding to the energy of that. At the core of what I was saying is like, this is not the contemporary experience was, was the underlying message on everything that I made. And so I was showing them a part of what that was like. And they were responding, but I was, you know, I was sort of in a very real sense, I was going through my own sort of, art school after art school because most of what I learned at school was socially and not necessarily about art. It was, it was about what not to do. But afterwards I, I spent the hours in the studio emulating the artists that I looked up to and going through these certain phases and sort of picking and choosing what I wanted to keep from my own process. So at the other end of like eight years, I had gone through my, landscape phase i'd gone through my basquiat phase i've gone through my um writing all over everything just writing uh, in different colors phase i've gone through building my own stretchers I've gone through using um images appropriated images on xerox paper and transferring them so i've you know i've i can say pretty comfortably i've pretty much been all over the place stylistically and i and i and i know what i 
want to keep and what I had to leave behind. But that's not a that process is not a uh, doesn't have a period on the end of it. It's always open for me. So I'm I'm still refining my process and adding new techniques and thinking about color and how to apply the paint differently. Um, so consequently, my stuff does change from time to time, and it really makes it tough for galleries to figure out what Frank Buffalo Hyde's brand is. They're like, you know, because mm. um, that's something that I tell galleries when I, you know, when they agree to show my work, I say, if you like this work, that's fine, but you, you, I want to let you know that my work does change, and it probably will change, and it's not going to be the same, and Everybody says, yeah, 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 sure, whatever, whatever, because they don't believe me. But when I show up the next year with stuff that's totally different, they're like, uh, <laughs> what happened to the stuff that you were painting last year? I'm like, that was like last year. I'm kind of not drastically changing that much, but sort of um, just about how I think about things. And more and more, um, as I become more confident in my actual applications of the paint and the way that I make paintings, more and more I'm I'm getting more comfortable with not editing myself so much because there's a lot of shit going on in my head. And um, I edit and filter a lot of stuff out to make it, a good painting and I think every artist kind of does that and they they sort of edit themselves and they're the hardest on themselves about what they put out and but um as I go along like that filter process is just sort of I don't know if it's I'm more confident in my ideas or if I just don't care I just make whatever you know if I think if I feel weird about something I'll make it and then see if anybody else feels weird about it but um Nine times out of ten, nobody nobody else feels weird about it. They're like, well, like, what's an cool. example of like something that makes you a little uncomfortable that you like a a concept that you've worked with? Um, I used to use a lot of pornography as underpainting. Like I used to do transfers as underpainting, um, a la um, Jasper Johns, like his flag paintings. You would see like newspapers in there. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would use a lot of vintage pornography in there and then some contemporary pornography. This is like when porn was still on paper and nobody had it in their phones and walking around in their pocket. <laughs> um, so that was one thing. Like I always kind of layered it so you could kind of see it if you really wanted to look at it, but it was in there. And um, there's some pieces and museums here in town that have really vulgar porn as underpaintings and nobody really knows it's there. Um, <laughs> I won't mention any names, but it's I know it's there and I think it's kind of funny. And they're like, oh, this is a great painting. I'm like, yeah, it is. <laughs> um, that was one. But more recently, um, that painting I did of Gwen Stefani last year when she did that jacked up video where she was like riding around in handcuffs, you know, with dressed up like a squad and riding horses and rolling all over inside of a teepee. Like I, I played with the idea of um, – adding more to that painting because it's just a central figure with like a loud color behind her. And it's, you know, it's pretty straightforward and sparse and not really that complicated, although it's very multi-layered and built up. Um, 
I struggled with the idea of people that didn't know my work or what I kind of how where I'm coming from would see it and just look at it as an aesthetically beautiful painting mm. and not know anything about that. And that's kind of what's happening with my work right now is like people don't really know kind of where I'm coming from if they're not familiar with my work and they just see oh yeah that that's cool and like uh, like that um Tonto Scissorhands painting where I combined uh Johnny Depp's role as Edward Scissorhands and and Tonto together um some people just think it's it's a really cool painting and like that I really like Johnny Depp but it's kind of the opposite yeah how do you approach that conversation because your your work is very like politically charged right now about this cultural appropriation that's resurging um how do you um initiate or allow that conversation to happen so people don't confuse you as being a fan <laughs> um I don't participate in the conversation that's something that I've never done. I mean, I, I don't, I don't sometimes feel the need to write like paragraphs about my stuff and give it to the gallery. So the, so the people working there can know, but, um, as for the, for the viewer, you'd be, I mean, you wouldn't be surprised. I'm sure you're sure, but you know, the public comes up with all this strange stuff just because of everything they're carrying with. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't, ultimately I decided it doesn't matter what your, what your main purpose was when you made it, because inevitably no one's going to listen to that. They're just going to bring their own shit to it and be like, well, I see. And I see like a wolf in the back of this one. And I'm like, I don't know how you could, because there's definitely not a wolf in that. And, <laughs> and they're like, so they just want it. They just want it to be so spiritual and so like otherworldly. And it's like, no, I'm just pissed off about some blonde chick that fucking dressed up like a native woman. Um, um, and just kind of leaving it like that. I, I kind of like that sort of ambiguity though. Like, um, I know some other artists might kind of have a problem with it. Like, oh, well, he's just perpetuating the thing by making it a big fucking painting of it. I'm like, um, I mean, there's, there's room to discuss that, but I, I rather, that's one of the, that's one of the things that makes me uncomfortable is that sort of, that space of dialogue or non-dialogue about my intentions about perpetuating or reappropriating it. It's, it's, it's a fine line and. You know, I don't know where that line is. Sometimes I feel like I'm successful with it, and other times people just don't get it, and that's fine. I'm kind of don't care at this point. Yeah, it seems like you carry like this this subtle humor throughout your work too, mm -hmm. and it's like if you get it, you get it. If you don't, you don't. And plus, you blur the lines, um, like doing a lot of traditional work, and you put in like cell phones and pagers and this stuff. Can mm -hmm. you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, that's always kind of that's always been a part of my work is combining technology with imagery and sort of updating. I think that's something I got from looking at TC Cannon's work. You know, I know he's like the golden standard or has been for years and years and years, but res respectfully, I think we've taken a step beyond that recently um, with, you know, my generation and younger generations. We're not dealing with some of those issues anymore. Um, but I kind of got that you could make smart paintings that didn't have to bow down to the public. Like you didn't have to dumb down your content for people that just wanted you to be pretty uh, or to make pretty paintings or be a pretty Indian or a noble savage. So I was always interested of how he subtly made cool ass paintings, but was saying something so political and so such a commentary on society at the time. Um, that's something that I wanted to make 
happen in my work. And um, one of the ways that I saw to do that was using technology. So early, I would always incorporate, like, um, when I first started painting, I was putting, like, cassette tapes in my paintings and <laughs> gluing CDs, like, smashing CDs and putting stuff in there. And, and I know nobody uses CDs or cassette tapes anymore. Um, but um, that's kind of how I it started. And then I said, and I started thinking, I'm like, well, I could just paint that stuff. I don't have to put it on there. So and then I started figuring out, like, different scenarios where, where that technology could be relevant. It went down to, like, putting iPods in there. And then sort of overlapping images of um, like dancers with fast food um, and music. And, you know, because a lot of my work always revolves around music. It either has a direct reference to it or it has music lyrics in the title or a reference to a band or a song that, you know, I made. Or So it makes a lot of sense now that you're carrying around these computers in your pocket. I mean, essentially, that's what they are, is they're like handheld computers. I mean... Um, I think we went to the moon with a with um, technology that was simpler than what's in your iPhone. <laughs> so I was, you know, I'm amazed by that, and um, I'm getting ready to do a large series of it's called Eyewitness about captures on your iPhone. You know, it's 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 really, you know, I'm I can't say that I'm not guilty because I'm always looking on my phone. I do a lot of business on there. I communicate with my family on there, but it's problematic how tied we are to them now so i'm starting to paint about it you know i'm starting to make these little commentaries about what's on your iphone or what are you looking at or are you capturing history are you are you actually living the moment that you're living are you living it through your phone with a filter so that's kind of and also one of my um underlying themes is describing your time in in history like what it's like to be alive now and that's basically what it's like is along with commodification of cultures that's been going on forever there's you know that commodification has come to the internet also so mm -hmm. it's 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 um it's being commented on immediately by natives now but it's it's still you know we're still having that conversation we're you know we're doing better in it and we're competing more on our end as far as the intelligence level and you know how fast we can get results but you know we're still you know it's kind of it's kind of weird like living two lives has taken on a new meaning it's not just native and non-native it's like real and virtual it's like everybody's always stuck in this duality your process like as far as like making a piece like how how much do you decide that you're just going to make it like super conceptual and how much do you allow like the painting to unfold as it goes a lot of times I, I have a pretty good idea of what I want it to look like but I leave a little bit of area for chance and change just because once you start working on it the paint inevitably reacts the way that it is. So I, I try to let the paint be paint and that's kind of, that's where the chance comes in. But um, for me, it's like images falling in behind each other, you know, like those old slide projectors, like you, you click on one, it clicks up and then you click it through and another one drops in like one, one image will inform another image will inform another, another image. So if I'm like watching CNN and I see something, 
I get this feeling. It's kind of like Spidey sense. Like you, like that. That's gonna be. That would be a, a badass painting, or, or or making something about that would be really interesting. And I just make mental notes. And sometimes, you know, I'm not good about writing them down, or 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 you know, I don't have a sketchbook because I do everything on my laptop now. Um, and I lose ideas. I mean, I've probably lost like my best ideas because I didn't write them down. But the ones that I keep, you know, arriving at again, again and again, make it to the to the art stage. And um, it's just, you know, every every artist has that sort of perception or that second sight when they when they're experiencing something or they see something that know and and know that it's going to be relevant in their work. They don't know how exactly, but I think that everybody has that sort of extra antenna that responds to that um, stimuli. It's it's interesting hearing the different processes and it seems like your work is super conceptual based and is that is that something that you've kind of always carried with you and do you think that if having a father who wasn't a prominent artist um, would have changed the way that you look at the world? Well, I mean, every especially in this town, there's there's families that are dynasties, quote unquote. I mean, there's multi generations of families that make the same type of work, work in the same medium. That's just not who I am. I mean, I spent, I think, a part of those ten years that I was working in anonymity was a conscious effort to step out of his shadow, and um, establish my own vocabulary and gain my own spot in you know the art scene in this town and you know in the contemporary native art world um so i wanted to make sure that when i did start to get attention that what i was making was mine mm. and it just wasn't um something that he started that i was continuing so um you know it's tough um and that, you know i have friends that sort of um, continue to make similar work than, you know, other generations of their family have made. And that's fine. But, you know, that's just not how I'm made. And I, sometimes I wish it was, but, uh, <laughs> because, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a trained stone carver. I grew up working in my father's studio. I can use all the saws, pneumatic, uh, hammers, all that stuff. I know all of his polishing techniques, how to pick a stone, all that stuff, you know, I can do it, but wow. I choose not to. <laughs> kind and, of rebelled a little bit. Yeah, I mean, that goes back to that sort of, um, it goes back to that identity thing. Like, I, I guess I've had always had a strong sense of identity, and I wanted to establish something for myself and not um, necessarily ride on his coattails for any, because people are going to assume that anyway because I of my last name and his last name, and they always do. I mean, like, oh, it must have been nice growing up having a father that was in the art world. I'm like, yeah, well, it is, and then it's not. So my work is nothing that, if you look, if it's nothing like his, and um, and it's a different conversation entirely. And the reason I know is because his collectors really don't like my work. <laughs> <laughs> they get excited, then they, they yeah, realize. Like, oh, you said all of Whoa, <laughs> that's not pretty. <laughs> a hamburger with yeah. a buffalo with yeah, it yeah <laughs> and so so who, who so who are the people that you work with and that are interested in your work and like what i mean you must have people that totally get you at this point and like have kind of a a collective of people who understand your your thought 
You know, I think from time to time, people do really ask me, like, who is your audience? Who are your, what they're asking, like, who are your collectors most times? But my audience, I've always felt, is um, the uninformed, the younger generations of artists that are working, and um, the working professional. Because I think um, a lot of, early on, a lot of my work was collected by people that work in colleges and museums that were supportive of sort of the content. And it goes back to you, you're saying that my work is conceptual. Um, a lot of it is conceptual, and I think it could be a lot more conceptual, but there are a lot of um, ideas that are just subtly under the surface that you almost have to look at a bunch of my work to figure out what's going on. Cause like it goes back to that, like fine line of um, perpetuating and not perpetuating cultural appropriation. But um, I haven't been able to find once one sort of um, person that I can point to our group can say like, that's a Frank Buffalo high collector. I mean, those are my people right there, but <laughs> no, I mean, it's been all over. It's been young couples starting their collection. It's been old retired professionals. It's been people, that are in the medical field. It's been musicians, actors. Um, and I think that's good, but it's also, you know, it's also problematic because my work, I said, does change from time to time. And it's hard to cultivate like that, that sort of collector. And um, I've had discussions with other artists before. It's like, you know, maybe at this point, artists don't need to have those patrons like they used to in past years because of, the way that we're able to access the public immediately through the internet and mm. our websites and Facebook and Kickstarter and all that stuff. I mean, we don't, we don't, galleries are still pre prestigious. They do serve a purpose, but they're not the be all end all necessity to make or break an artist anymore. They're just not. been in some of the best well I wouldn't say most well-known galleries here in town and other places and while it's great and prestigious to say oh, well I'm at so and so and was like whoa you must be you must be doing really well I'm like on oh, yeah no not really um, monetarily anyway so that's really not what I've been about um, although I'm at a point now where I'm sort of um, realizing a lot of things about the business side of selling art and um does it get to a point where you have to start thinking about that when you have a family and you're like oh yeah i mean uh, once you have a family the the game totally changes you can be you can be the angry avant-garde artist all day long 24 7 if you don't have a family and you're living in a shitty studio with a dog um and you know if you guys don't pay your bills or if the dog doesn't eat for a couple of days, no big deal. But you know, when you have a family, like it changes. Um, and so I've kind of always been, um, good at putting deals together and selling things, not necessarily my own art, but, um, I work for an antiques broker here in town. So that kind of utilizes some of my cultivated people skills and my talent for the art of the deal. But I've been more conscious of that since my daughter's been born. Um, I wouldn't say I've actually 
gone as far as to make things that I know are going to be commercially successful that I would definitely make money. But I am definitely sort of branching out into different price points now mm. that uh, making more affordable pieces along with the larger expensive pieces, just so that every price point is represented and, you know, everybody can afford to, you know, either start a collection or, um, if they can't afford like a $10,000 painting, they can get like a $500 work on paper. That's cool. Yeah. So making your work more accessible. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's just a way of figuring out how to make things um, worthwhile. I mean, I, I wouldn't be able to make those paper pieces as affordable as I, as they are if I didn't figure out how to make stencils. Mm -hmm. So, you know, they are, stencils are a way of making original paintings on paper that are originals and that they're never going to be like anything else. So that's one, that's how I've solved it. I'm looking into like silk screening and stuff like that, but um, that's more out of necessity than anything. Cause I have to make a lot of work this year and I have zero time. <laughs> are you going to hire some minions? Um, I've had interns before. I, I joke with my friends is like all my interns, become famous so they don't want to be interned anymore so when you say you have a lot of work coming up it's, does that mean you have like galleries or do you have museum shows i know you show a lot all over the country so yeah i've got a solo show coming up in salt lake city so then i'm um helping establish the indigenous fine art market here in santa fe it's this is going to be their inaugural year it's going to be hosted by the rail yard and it's a it's an art market that's based upon Pawn, representing the artist, um, letting them have a say in how it's run and um, and how it's planned and the programming that they're going to have. And um, and that doesn't seem like that big of a deal, but it is. It really is if you know any of the history. And can you mm -hmm. talk a little bit about that, like why this is such a big deal? Well, I think it's um, any time that um, any organization or market or anything like that is gone on for so long and, and unchallenged or um, isn't healthy. I mean, that goes for institutions. It goes for um, businesses. They sort of become this other thing. Um, I'm not, I won't say machine, but machine is a good reference that, you know, they become so big that anytime anybody has any sort of, problem or say with it that they're not listened to or they're not valued as a voice so this market coming out of um, that need is kind of important because every artist is going to be included in the decision making of um, sort of what goes on at that market and it's going to sort of expand and change but um, anytime that you include the people that make your event and the planning of the event. I mean, granted, it's going to be difficult listening to like 300 voices in the planning, but ultimately if there's a structure with the staff and they can take these ideas and sort of mold them into, into programming and, and what the market is actually going to be, because right now it's very mercurial. I mean, it's, it's changing and people are figuring out what they can and can't do as far as programming, who's going to work with them. Um, and I think in the long run, it's going to be better because uh, it's going to open the market up more. I mean, uh, Coke has Pepsi, Walmart has Target, you know, everybody's, you know, 
it's only going to push both markets um, and the people, the buying public is going to, you know, have a choice. So um, I think it's good. And um, I know there's a lot of people are rubbed the wrong way here in town. And I think my perspective is it's, it's three or four days out of the year and the rest of the year we have to live together. So. And And so when you say three or four days out of the year, um, it's going to be kind of, happening at the same time as the Sawaya Indian market, which is like the largest mm-hmm. native art market in the country, or I mean, so in the far world, in the world. Yeah. It's, uh, it's going to be one day. It's going to run from that Thursday to that Saturday, okay. um, in August. So, um, the downtown market runs Saturday and Sunday traditionally. Okay. So we're going to have a full week of programming with a rail yard, um, area businesses and art spaces we have uh, a full week of programming with warehouse 21 we're doing some stuff with el museo and hopefully we'll have um, different stages around the rail yard for you know spoken word open mic and all kinds of fun stuff like that so traditionally the i i don't know that much about the indian market Mm -hmm. um other than just like through um the people that i'm surrounded by talking about it but Traditionally, it's it was started as by a group of collectors or non-natives, correct? It's my understanding that it, it was started initially as a um, a pottery show, and that's you know pot pots have been the most popular item since, and then still very popular. But yeah, I mean it's it was started by non-natives, and you know natives have been benefiting from the show as well since you know it started. So. Um, First and foremost, I'm pro-native, and if anybody is, you know, feeding their families from a market, I don't care what market it is, I mean, it's good to me. I mean, mm-hmm. any, I don't begrudge anybody from making a living and feeding their families, paying their bills, keeping, the, you know, a, head, uh, a roof over their head. And so um, I, I'm aware of that, and I know a lot of families where, you know, the downtown market has been a third of their income for the year. Mm. And uh, so... The indigenous fine arts market is not meant to be uh, a replacement for that market by any means. It's an alternative. It's another option. And it's run by native it's, people? It's run by uh, a native staff. And um, so I think that accessibility in, in of itself, that openness for dialogue about putting um, the artist first is um, a valuable goal. And I, you know, I hope it continues. Yeah, that's it's gonna be really interesting to see mm-hmm. what happens. Yeah. Do you um do you know if there's a lot of um positive participation happening towards it? Because August is coming up soon, and that's of this year. So. Um... Well, in the in the brief three weeks since they decided to put it on, there's been an overwhelming positive reaction by artists and the community. Um, I'm talking about the rail yard community because they're looking for something that they can be involved with. That's kind of will bring people to the rail yard because there's a lot of things going on down there, but it's still kind of disjointed. Um, yeah. Anything that would sort of bring more people down there to just uh, enjoy what's happening there. There's, you know, second street, there's all the galleries, there's Tomasita's, um, El Museo. Uh, there's galleries down there, site Santa Fe. So, if it become it starts to become known as a more of a central gathering area, because the people that live here, I mean, all the stuff down there is cool, but it's still new to us, and we don't really think of it like 
the rail yard is the place to be. But um, yeah. if we can change it a little bit and get people to start hanging out down there, it'll be it'll be neat. talk about like art markets have you participated in that since you were young or is that something that's kind of new to you i've never done um swaya's indian market um i've participated in idle jorg's outdoor market and i've participated in the herds outdoor market and the first time I did the Idle Jork market, which was the first year they ever had the market, they were trying to figure out all of the kinks of putting on an outdoor market, which, you know, there's a lot of planning that goes into that. Yeah. And um, consequently, you know, that being their situation and my situation of it being like the first couple of years of trying to teach myself how to paint didn't really go well for me. <laughs> so... um the herd market I did, I mean, it had mixed mixed results. I mean, I made, I think I made my booth fee, um, but it wasn't, you know, I've I've had more success in museum and gallery situations with my work just because it kind of really doesn't translate into a booth situation. It was after the last time I did the herd show that I kind of, it really solidified my need to, branch out into different price points. Um, I could still make my work like my work, but I had to make it affordable for other people. So yeah. I could still have my message, but you know, I, I started, so that's when I made a painting that I thought was really cool. I would make sure that I'd made a stencil of it too, so I could have it and make some paper pieces or, um, so I, I can't say that I didn't learn anything from doing art markets, but, um, I think if you if you're familiar with my showing history, a lot of it has been museums, a lot of it's been in galleries and invitationals around the country and um, in France. What are um, what are some kind of um, points of advice you can offer to artists who are considering getting into the caliber of participation in the native art market that you are i mean like do you have anything you can say that's like don't do that or do that or <laughs> i mean find an old person with lots of money and marry them no I'm just kidding <laughs> <laughs> and take them on a lot of roller coasters no I'm just kidding <laughs> no um i i taught briefly an advanced painting class. And, you know, I think the major benefit of me talking to students that are just about to get out of art school or, or getting ready to sort of figure out what they want to do with art is that, you know, I've, I have seen a lot and I've been through a lot, but um, I tell them and I truly believe that there's no one path to greatness or success. Um, the only true path is, greatness itself and if you concentrate on what you do and make it the best for you the rest will take care of itself I mean um, as soon as I stopped comparing myself to other artists and the shows that they were having 
and you know the press that they were getting as soon as I stopped caring about what other people were doing or what they thought about what I was doing that's when my voice started to resonate with people or my work started to resonate with people where I was just like before I was like oh you know I would look in magazines and read the newspaper like oh this person's having a show like how come I can't have a show my work's better than theirs I mean ultimately it, it is or isn't but um my work is my work but I was always really just frustrated by what was going on that wasn't happening for me but the minute that I kind of turned all that off and just focused on what I was making that's when you know, boom, get into a, a gallery, boom, get a newspaper article. Next year, boom, get into another gallery. A little bit better this time. Um, better sales, offered a museum show, written about in art in America. Um, it's just, um, you know, and press anyway, is like, it's like man-made weather. I mean, there's really <laughs> no way of predicting it unless you're paying for it. So and a lot of artists do pay for press, you know. You get contacted. Are we told we want to do a three-page, you know, spread on you, all about you. It's going to be five thousand dollars. <laughs> like, okay, no, that's okay. Trade? Yeah, yeah, yeah. In the very beginning of our conversation, um, you said that you were born um, with a birth defect, and that's the first time that I've ever heard you mention anything about that. I've known you quite a while now, mm -hmm. and you said that your mom made a decision to not let that be a part of your life. Mm -hmm. And it really seems like you you haven't ever let it stop you. And yeah, how does that how does that translate into your work? You do so much and you like I mean it's just amazing. Um yeah, she if because of that decision and because of the way that she treated me, uh, whenever I got hurt or got into a fight with other kids or they teased me she didn't coddle me. She said, you know, get your ass out there and play with them. And, and if they're messing with you, beat the shit out of them. So, you know, <laughs> that's kind of what I did. Um, and it, it hasn't held me back. Um, but, you know, it's being human is complex. And I don't have to explain that to anybody that's, you know, aware, self-aware. It's just, um, but when you add... Okay, let me back up. If you're a minority, it's complicated enough. And then you add a handicap on top of that, it's even tougher. And then you add that you're an artist on top of that. I mean, it's just so much that I just kind of maybe blocked it out. And I had to create this, I had to create this bubble around myself, like this ego that's that was strong enough to survive, but... um it's not the type of ego that's um, that thinks they're artistically superior to anybody, or because of the recognition that I've got that I'm that I'm, you know, that I have the right to treat anybody else badly, and that's from my father too, because you know he's world recognized, and I always saw him treat everybody with respect and dignity, and I never saw him like. Um, flip out or, or just punish somebody because he had power. I mean, that, cause that's, you know, I, I've never seen him do that and I would never do that. So that's kind of the balance of the, my mother and father, but the doctors were right. Um, I, I haven't lived a, a normal life. <laughs> Which is it, probably a good it, thing. <laughs> it's a good thing. I mean, I, I was a prom king, um, 
at my prom. Um, I have a daughter. I have a beautiful wife. Um, I've played music. Um, I've been on CDs. I've performed in front of thousands of people. Um, and uh, I make art. And, you know, if I, if I stop and think about it, making making art, making paintings is a really a strange thing to do. Like, why would anybody give a crap about what's going on between my ears? <laughs> like, and furthermore, why would anybody want to buy it? And, you know, I've been, I've been fortunate that my work has kind of been re- continually received and people are still interested in what I'm making. Um, and I think Hopefully, you know, my plan is to keep building on the momentum that I, you know, started 20 years ago, just like every year getting better representation, better gallery shows, better museum interest. And um, my goals have never been bridled by this town. You know, some people become so successful and well-known in Santa Fe that they don't need to go anywhere or participate in national or international events. And my sites have always been set on that you know i want to transcend regional fame do you want to transcend native fame as well like what's that feel like for you i've never really had a problem with it um i don't necessarily want to transcend native art i just want i want to take it with me cool (laughs) that's awesome and is there a um, is there a moment that you can recall from your career or your life in general that you had to make that kind of decision that your mom made with you of like, no, I'm going to take it there and I'm going to go this way. Can you think of something like that? Um, there's been a couple. There's been a couple. Um, the last major one was I got into this really nice gallery on Canyon Road. It was like, it was right on Canyon Road. It wasn't like off Canyon a little bit. It wasn't Canyon adjacent. You know, you know how people like, when you first start out, you get you get shown at a coffee shop that's like four blocks from Canyon Road. You're like, I got a show on Canyon Road, but you're not really. But um, so, you know, that's another conversation I tell my students. Like, I've shown in every coffee shop in this town and every hole-in-the-wall shit-ass gallery between here and uh, – Syracuse, New York. So I've kind of, you know, I've paid my dues, but, um, (laughs) I was showing in this really nice gallery there, you know, you could, they sold a lot, you know, you could tell they sold a lot. And, um, I made a series of paintings that was, that was based on like, kind of like Gauguin paintings, I, I guess is the closest thing I could, you know, beautiful Brown women. Um, (laughs) so I thought I made these paintings. I was like, all right, you know, let's see what happens. And nothing. They were just like <laughs> dead on arrival. No, beautiful paintings, but you know, people can tell if you're not being true to what you are. I think, and and they just avoid it like dog do. They're just like <laughs> that's not that's not you. I mean, that's a cool painting, but that's not you. And and I think that was like the second time that I got into a really well known nice gallery on Canyon Road. And nothing happened for me. And when I say nothing, I, I can't say nothing happened. I, I, I gained a level of respect. And you know, I'm talking about sort of um, 
monetarily, you know, sales wise or being able to make money off of your art. And um, I think that was the point I said, I, I don't know if I ever said it out loud, but I definitely in my internal dialogue was like, this is bullshit. I'm never going to, I'm never going to do this again. I'm never going to sort of try to make something for somebody. I'm just going to make, I'm just going to listen to myself and make what I make. And people are going to have to deal with it. And if they don't like it, then I guess I'm going to have a, a room or a studio or a house full of this crap. But um, I can't do this because it, it was a horrible feeling. It was. Um, Did you feel like you were kind of being false to yourself? Yeah. And, um, and you know, I, that's, that's why I know um, that I'm not that kind of artist. And that's why I can sleep at night. <laughs> <laughs> artist how's your um, personal how's your personal way of dealing with failure like dealing with like having an expectation and not having it met um, it happens a lot as an artist it does and one way that I found is to never have any expectations <laughs> that way you never get disappointed but that doesn't mean that you don't still continue for that excellence and what you're about and, and what you're making because first and foremost, if you don't respect what you do, then nobody else will. Mm -hmm. And if you don't make your stuff to your standard, then nobody else is going to respond to it. So those standards are going to change over time, and everybody goes through their sort of periods. But um, and I'm ultimately it, it's happening to me right now. I mean, I I talk a lot about that and never really am aware when things change, but my paintings are changing right now and I'm not necessarily sure if I'm cool with that, but it's, it's like, I know, I'm like, what the, like, seriously, come on. And, but it's like, you get in there and it's like, um, it's, it's a lot like making a song. It's like playing a band and you got to just riff off of uh, what's happening and you can't, you can't get in the way of your work. I mean, that's, it sounds it sounds tough, but it's, you know, it, the easiest and the toughest thing about growing is getting out of your own way. It's like, uh, no, I can't do this. I'm known as the, I'm known as the native appropriation guys. Like I can't, I can't make anything else other than that. And then it, then it happens and it's made and you're like, fuck. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, well, I'm, I'm. I'm that guy also. <laughs> I'm that's also me, but I'm the superhero guy too. Because I've got this really strong urge to do an Iron Man painting, and I'm resisting it, but it's gonna happen. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's awesome! Um, I wanted to ask really quick, um, quickly. Um, how is it? I know that your wife is also an artist, and she does a different medium than you. She does ceramic. And how is that um, being in a family with somebody else who's a career-based artist, totally working? Do you guys butt heads or do you inspire each other or both? Or 
I mean, I don't want to get you in trouble, but I wanted to ask her this too when I interviewed her and I didn't get to it. Um, <laughs> um, it's, you don't have to explain a lot when you're in a relationship with another artist about that thing that makes you create. What you do have to do is coordinate studio time mm. um, and there's a lot of back and forth because she's six years younger than I am and I've been doing this a long time I since like I was 18 or 19 um, and it's tough uh, I'm not gonna lie it's it's tough um, artists by nature are incredibly Resilient and self-reliant, as well as um, insecure and fragile. Mm -hmm. And I'm talking about myself. <laughs> Better be <that>. yeah. <laughs> And it's um, it's it's definitely interesting. I mean, it's it's tough to take that step back. And but you know, having said that, I totally believe in her as an artist. And I tell everybody in any conversation I have, she's way more talented than I am. She's got the potential to be so much more of everything that I've been. And um, otherwise, I wouldn't have been with her. I mean, I couldn't be with somebody where, like, I knew their work was, like, horrible. But it's like, keep trying, honey. I'm like, no. I mean, that, that goes with my friends, too. It's like, if I don't like your work, I ain't fucking hanging out with you. Because, you know, your work is an extension of who you are. And if I think your work is shit chances are you're not going to be where I am. Mm -hmm. And I'm not going to be where you are. <laughs> yeah, no, it's so, true. It is. So, um, and that's that's a whole other thing. Like, so much of this town is um, everybody thinks they need to go out and stroke each other's egos every week at the openings and stuff like that. And I've, you know, I've never really been, I mean, it's nice. One of the nice things about this town and living in the Southwest is like a lot of people are familiar with my work, but up until like, five years ago nobody really knew that I was making that work oh interesting so people are more and more figuring out it's me like somebody they've seen around town forever or they know me from um, my antique broker job and they they're like oh I love your work you made you make that that's you I'm like yeah and that's so more and more I'm getting more recognized for that but um, I kind of consciously d decided to do that too after seeing those hair flowing in the wind ads in Southwest art. Like I didn't want it to be all out in front of my paintings. Like, yeah, come check me out. I'm like, Oh yeah. I buy my paintings too, but really you're buying me, but really look at my paintings, but no, really look at me. <laughs> so my paintings have been always out in the forefront. And I think now it's, it's just time for me to sort of take a step out in front of, and, or maybe not in front, maybe take a step outside to the side of my paintings, just so people maybe get a bigger, a more of a real sense of, the art that they're looking at. I don't know. For whatever reason, when people see who made the painting, they kind of think they, they get a deeper sense of Well, what, it's connection. Like yeah. you were saying, why would people buy the painting? It's because they're moved by it. And yeah. then like learning that there's a human being behind it. Mm -hmm. um, I think artists have a really hard time with that. Like, um, you're like you said, you're very self-aware and like finally allowing yourself to get a little bit of, um, just a little bit of, um, like, what is it called? <laughs> Just a pat on the back. Like, wow, yeah. rad. Your work is good. Like, 
feels nice. It does. And I think um, having a kid allowed me to be able to do that. Because, you know, if I was still single without a family, I would be like, I could, I can afford to be an angry artist from now forever. Yeah. I can be changed. You know, I can still have subversive ideas and make cool work, but not necessarily have to be so um, so avant-garde and so cool that, you know, I, I, I can't, I, I'm too cool to talk to anybody or too cool to let anybody know that I make the work. So letting, you know, being a father has kind of allowed me to, be more comfortable with letting the public into my life mm. and letting them know who I am. But it's not a it's not a destination. I I I, I want to be clear that you know I haven't gotten to that point where I feel like I've arrived. Like I don't walk around. You know, I I I got to a point where I think people know who I am and they they're supportive of my work. But I don't ever want to think that I'm like done. I I've got other places to go. I've got different plateaus to reach with my work, with my friend's work, you know, and um, I think that's been important to me too, is to be always accessible to artists that want to talk to me or want to come by the studio or just hang out or just pick my brain about situations or other people in town that, you know, they're, they're dealing with. Because when I was coming out of school and getting some recognition, some of the more established artists weren't necessarily as inclusive as I am. And uh, I always wanted to be conscious of that. You know, you gotta, you gotta be, you gotta be cool with the, the cats that are coming up. Cause um, there's no reason not to be. Yeah. And you might learn something too. You yeah. Know? I mean, yeah. yeah, there's a lot of smart young, younger generation folks, you mm -hmm. know, and yeah. And I, and, like I said, it's just uh, if I can, a lot of my work has always been about if I can make other artists not have to deal with certain situations that I had to or make them not have to even think about it, then I've done my job. And then the public at large, if I've made somebody stop and think for, you know, even five minutes these days, it's, it, it's a accomplishment because everybody's yeah everybody's got such a uh dwindling attention span and it's only getting worse i mean now i mean I, i'm kind of worried about painting actually like what's what's going to happen to it when <laughs> if you can't like look at it within five seconds and put it back in your pocket <laughs> you just gotta start making like iphone shells yeah i know well i thought about that i was like everyone's doing that now but, Dang it. yeah <laughs> Uh, okay, so the last question is, um, so if you could like say one thing that you could put out, um, whatever it is. I think I, honestly, if I could had a chance to speak with other artists or if I had a very limited time to let people know what I'm about, I would uh, tell them I'm just about making work that's relevant to our time. Like I, I want to leave something here that's relevant to what we're all going through and what we've gone through to this point and maybe have a legacy for my daughter to be proud of. Take you to new heights. New Let's heights. go up a few flights. We heard what was said. I'm going to shed some true light. 
This is art, no corporate crap. Uh-uh. Rock the t-shirt, next sport the hat. Let's go. Watch me show splendor, I'm no pretender. Cause I can bring summer during cold December. Mm. Golden embers, burnt up seas, remains. They traded their names for some sleazy fame. As it all turns out, they're forgotten about. Well, I'm the one that the homies are talking I'm about. Relevant, heaven sent, seven grand seven my back. Grand. Hot rays from the sun that'll tan your Hot black. Rays. Understand, few pack enough ammo to scramble. I'm far from sample, yeah. I'm more like Rambo. Uh-huh. Danger, explosive devices. And we the ones that you want to keep close in a crisis. You know, I smashed a few reps, came up a few steps, and I'ma tear it up right now for you guests. Go right on freaking while the icon speaking on my J-O-B. Weeknights and weekends, damn, I'm so gorgeous. Smash through borders, authority shaking, we taking no orders. You can't afford this, it's too expensive. Take a second, my track record's too extensive. While it all goes down, I'm the talk of the town. Soon a lot of these chumps won't be walking around. I'm so precise on any pro device, I heat it up, and still I'm cold as ice. Rip the stage to the ground when I spit it. My style's too complex for cowards. To get it. get it, deadly force, and y'all fools already lost. Came in the game like lanes and still steady floors. Mm-hmm.